0: i'm scott i'm bill and And we're we're the the trade Trade guys Guys. you're listening to the trade guys a podcast produced by csis where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand i'm h andrew schwartz and i'm here with scott miller and bill reinch the csis trade guys On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about the U.S.-EU joint statement of the Trade and Technology Council and what that means. We'll also talk about oil price caps in Russia. All that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, it's great to be back with you. I want to thank our brilliant host, Emily Benson, who has been sitting in but i'm really glad to be back because it gives us an opportunity to talk about ohio state football, tulane football. Can you believe it Scott, Tulane's going to the Cotton Bowl?
1: It's uh, there's some amazing results and the championship weekend resulted in despite the fact ohio state had home sitting on the couch with their pom-poms wound up in the in the uh, playoffs. So pretty surprising but i guess th- there's an opportunity for redemption. So there's a- It's
0: pretty incredible and i know we're here to talk about trade because we are the trade guys, but I had to mention that.
1: Yes. Tulane has a team. Tulane has a winning
0: team, a conference championship team. Conference champion going to the Cotton Bowl, the American Conference Championship. They haven't been good like this since the 30s or 40s or something. And it's really great because my son's there and he's having a blast and has big time college sports now. And so it's it's really a, a an added feature. Not to mention, I'm off to New Orleans this weekend, guys. So really, it's going to be fun. You get
1: a little pre-partying uh, done for the uh, Cotton Bowl. <laughs>
0: That's great. I'm taking my son and his friends out to dinner, and it's going to be the great one of the great pleasures of my life.
1: Well, have some oysters for me.
0: You got it. You got it. Well, meanwhile, guys, there's other things going on in the world. The U.S. and the EU had its Trade and Technology Council summit. And the negotiators met this week for the third ministerial of the TTC. What's your assessment on this? Well,
2: I think we made some predictions last week about how little was going to be accomplished. And those more or less came true. There were some things that happened. It was not a failure by any means. They announced some collaborations with both Kenya and Jamaica on internet, improving internet connectivity, which is important for all developing countries, but particularly for those two. Setting out a roadmap on trustworthy artificial intelligence, trying to develop global standards for a variety of emerging technologies, particularly uh, AI. They agreed to cooperate on semiconductors. In two respects, one, I think they agreed to try to cooperate on information sharing and early warning to systems to address potential blockages, choke points, production problems, but also to coordinate more effectively on on subsidies and try to make sure that we are not getting in each other's way. We voted $52 billion in subsidies through the Chips and Science Act. They are proposing somewhere in the same vicinity for a separate European program sort of to do the same thing. And I think there's a recognition that having both of us duplicating each other is not the most efficient way to proceed. So discussions about who's doing what and how to deconflict, I think, is a good idea. And the fact that they talked about that is good. I think the, the problem with all these things is that they were sort of agreements to agree. You know, it was, a, we will go ahead and develop a system for greater information sharing and greater cooperation. You know, they didn't develop the system. They didn't do that at the event. They just said, we're going to do it. So, you know, there were a lot of a lot of cans kicked to the next episode, which will be, it turns out, uh, in Sweden uh, in the late spring early summer because Sweden has the EU presidency in the next six months of the first half of the year. So we'll see where they physically if they undo it in Stockholm or or someplace else. A lot of the discussion was overshadowed by the EV discussion, which we've beaten to death here. In the past, it was animated by President Biden's press conference the Thursday before the TTC, in which he appeared with French President Macron and and agreed that the uh, U.S. law had some glitches, I think was his word, and could use some repairs. That made the Europeans optimistic. There was no agreement reached on this subject uh, at the TTC. Various European statements afterwards said they were marginally more optimistic than they were going in, but it remains an issue to be resolved. I think, as we said last week, the the context has changed. For the EU, it's really become a, a subsidy issue more than it has a, a protectionist Issue. I mean, they're both issues, but the EU is particularly concerned about the subsidies and their apparent inability to match them, either because they don't want to or because they can't. So we'll see where it comes out. The speculation here is starting to begin on how the United States is going to fix it, if it's going to be fixed. I think I said last week that I could think of only two ways to do that. One, by the Treasury Department inventing a waiver out of thin air, or two, by the Congress changing something. After last week's podcast, the White House indicated they do not intend to go to Congress to ask them to make any changes. So that, you know, leaves you with option 1. People have started to try to think about, well, if you're going to invent a waiver that probably isn't justifiable in the law, how would you at least dress it up so it looks uh, justifiable, passes the laugh test? And the one rumor that I've heard about recently is that the act has a exception for countries with whom we have trade agreements. And the thought here is that the Treasury Department could just say that the government procurement agreement under the WTO is a trade agreement for purposes of the statute. That has the advantages, including all the EU countries and not including China. Of course, the question there is, I think, pretty clearly is not what Congress had in mind. So I'm not sure that it passes the laugh test. But you may see something like that.
0: Well, Scott, you know, as Bill said, can kicking which can kicking, by the way, I now think is the American national sport, not football, kicking the can down yes. the road. You, you've looked at our budget uh,
1: recently, yeah. federal budget. Yeah,
0: Can kicking. So, Scott, what, what's your take on all this?
1: Well, look, first of all, compliments to the administration. There were three cabinet officers present at, at these meetings. And that's a surprise to old cynical codgers like me. In fact, you used to be able to assess how fast these international summits were falling apart and becoming irrelevant by the frequency with which the the uh, principals skipped the meetings. And in this case, we had the Secretary of State, Secretary of Commerce, and the U.S. Trade Representative all present. We said a year ago, Scott, yeah. that the acid test would be who shows up for the third meeting. That's exactly right. And, we, and they did show up. So compliments to the administration for this. It does demonstrate a level of seriousness. Despite can kicking,
0: was there an over under for who was going to show up? We did three. Not. Were you guys? Did you guys make a bet with Vegas that two of them would be there, or like what?
1: It, it seems to me we should have, uh, but uh, didn't.
2: <laughs> so. There was one defection that was caused a brief spate of eyebrow raising when uh, Terry Breton, who's the EU Commissioner for Internal Market, announced that he was not coming, and he didn't come. He did not come. He said it was because that not enough time was going to be devoted. To the electric vehicle issue that we were just talking about, although it certainly was a feature of the conversation, there was uh, scurrilous gossip that the real reason he wasn't coming was because he wasn't invited to the Kennedy Center Honors event. That was Sunday night, but I think that was denied by all parties, so we shouldn't repeat that.
1: Mon Dieu! Well, you know, hurt feelings aside, there are ways to keep these things on track. And first of all, I want to compliment the administration for demonstrating the purpose that they have for this. They want it to, to succeed. However, my advice to them, if they're listening, it would be to continue to focus on areas where there's genuine common ground. I think semiconductors, And artificial intelligence. The work being done there is work that will benefit both parties. There's clear interests that overlap there. And I think that it's always tough with Europe because our economies are in some ways structurally similar. We're both high wage, high technology economies. Europe is, is under real competitiveness pressure because of energy costs. And so you'll read articles about, say, the German chemical industry, and without low-priced natural gas, the German chemical industry has a tough time being globally competitive. With cheap gas, they're a powerhouse. But we'll be points at which, because of the similarities between the U.S. economy and the European economy in terms of what we do well and where we have vulnerabilities, it's easy to step on the other guy's rice bowl and make problems. And that's usually what derails these things.
0: Well, are we worried that there's policy responses to our domestic subsidies could drive a deeper wedge between the U.S. and the EU?
1: Yeah, it has in the past, and it sure
2: could this time. I think the new argument that's showing up, one is that, yes, I was in a discussion this morning with Koreans uh, who have some of the same complaints about the subsidies and, and the EV tax credits because their automobile companies are also disadvantaged. And one of the discussions was there's this trend towards industrial policy. And if you think about it and put it in context, it's not exactly new. If you look at it historically, you know, David Ricardo came up with the theory of comparative advantage in the 19th century. You know, 200 years later, what happened was the Japanese figured out how to create comparative advantage through a combination of subsidies, government direction and and protectionism. And they did that uh, very effectively in the 60s, 70s and 80s. They were followed by the, what came to be known as the Asian Tigers, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore in particular. And they, then they were followed by China, who took it kind of to an extreme. It's all the same thing. And now we're starting to do it. In fact, if you talk to the Chinese privately, what they will say is, you're starting to do to us what we've been doing to you for the last 30 years, which raises one question here is sort of what took us so long. And the Europeans may catch this disease, too. And we're all moving in that direction. You know, if you're an economist, you're horrified because this is a derogation of the free market and, you know, all the things you believe in as far as competition and the invisible hand and everything else is concerned. The other issue that's coming up, which we're going to hear increasingly from the EU, although they are not innocent by any means, is the extent to which this undermines WTO rules and rule of law and how the U.S., which has been standing up for rule of law since the 40s with the uh, GATT, is now becoming the main offender. And so there's two co- two trends here, both of which are not positive from the standpoint of the trading system.
1: But subsidies at the same time are not a new issue of contention between the U.S. and Europe. The longest running case at the WTO, the one that's probably old enough to vote at this point is the uh, the U.S.E.U. aircraft subsidy case, so-called Boeing Airbus. So this is 17 or 18 years, years running. So they had a meeting about that at the TTC as well. I forgot to mention that.
2: And But that was a classic case of kicking the can. When President Biden came in, he inherited that dispute which at that point, I think, was in its 16th or 17th year. So Scott is right. Uh, by now, it should be able to vote. And Ambassador Ty worked out a quote-unquote agreement. The agreement was that the two sides would uh, drop the retaliation that they were imposing on each other because there were, those of you that are wonks about this recall, we brought cases each against, against each other and, and both sides won. I've maintained that we won more than they won, but both sides won, there was retaliation. That was all dropped, but the can was kicked because the workout was over the next, I think it was five years, we will figure out a solution to this problem. They had, I think, their first ministerial level meeting in at least a year on that precise subject at the TTC, and they didn't work anything out. So the clock is ticking the can has been kicked. Eventually, you know, I, if you can come up with yet another, mar- another bad uh, cliche, eventually the chickens on this one will come home to roost. The five years will expire and they'll have to do something. But we're not there yet.
1: Well, if there's an obvious lesson here, it's you avoid avoid subsidies issues if you want to have constructive discussions with the EU. Or the U.S., for that matter. The
2: real object lesson is avoid bad metaphors and cliches, and I will try to do better in the future.
1: Excellent point.
0: Well, I'm starting to think that the Washington football team should have named itself the Washington Can Kickers as opposed to the Washington Commanders.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, they pulled out a tie last week. Don't sell them short.
0: They're they're playing well. I mean, but look, the hay in the barn is on the the name there. So, you know, I, I don't know, man. I think Can Kickers could be a future D.C. franchise. Guys, let's shift to oil and oil caps. The EU price cap on Russian oil kicked off on Monday of this week. How will the global price cap affect the global oil market?
1: First of all, we're part of this too. This is a G7 effort. So it includes the United States. And it's, it's an interesting one. A couple points. First, that about 20% of crude oil in commerce has a sanction from someone on it. In terms of the United States, we sanction oil from Venezuela, Iran, Syria, Libya, the Central African Republic, a couple other small producers, and of course now Russia. So there's a considerable amount of of oil that is subject to sanctions of one sort or another roughly speaking the the commodities traders rule of thumb is about 20% it trades at a lower rate than the the benchmark crudes in the case of russian oil the russian urals is the benchmark and it's trading it was trading about $58 while brent crude which is the european benchmark is at 78 most recently. So, it trades at a discount to start with for a number of market-based reasons. But what the G7 has done here is used their mastery of the insurance markets. Basically, no one lets a tanker anywhere near their waters without insurance on the transit. And it turns out most most of the insurers and reinsurers in the oil trade are based in the G7. The city of London being the largest of the homes for insurers. And insurance not that's not issued by a G7 nation tends to trade thinly, it's not well-established. So what the sanctions amount to is it's a ban on seaborne shipments or that basically Western companies, G7 companies, will refuse to insure or finance Russian crude. Now, that's not a stopper, because there are other markets, there always have been other markets for Russian crude, and uh, China and India seem to be takers. So the global south will still buy the, the oil. There are alt- alt- alternatives developing in the insurance market, not quickly, but they will eventually. There's also opportunity for smugglers, which there always is. It's an, it's an arbitrage play, essentially. So imagine a full tanker of Russian oil pulls into international waters, and an empty tanker pulls up next to it, and they transfer some of the cargo, and who knows where the oil came from. So there's some opportunity for those kinds of maneuvers. In the long run, it's hard to say whether this is going to work. Most price schemes, whether price fixing or price caps, only work when everyone's playing. Okay, and Russia clearly has no interest in participating in this scheme. So the current cap is is above the market price for euros now. So what I would watch as a more important long term element is investment and Western technology limits and sanctions on on Russia, because any oil industry, Russian in particular, will require ongoing investment to continue production levels, even at the current production levels. The baseline, according to Rystatic Energy, is about fifty billion dollars a year of investment required by the Russian energy hydrocarbons industry. Their forecast for next year is they'll get about thirty five billion. So if that is a long term trend toward underinvestment because Western companies refuse to participate, Western technology remains cut off. That's going to affect the supply of Russian oil probably more than the caps.
2: I'm, I kind of am thinking that it, the cap may work, but the main reason it will work is because it's not going to make a lot of difference because sixty dollars is not that different from what Russia is getting anyway. I mean, Russia of course will has objected and will continue to object, but they don't have a lot of options. I mean, if they can sell the oil to non-participants and use the thin insurance market that Scott described and Try to do it that way, but they won't make that much more money in all likelihood because they're already selling it at a discount. So I'm not sure what their incentive to go to all that trouble is. And if I were a if I were a third country insurer outside the G7 and not participating in this, I would raise my rates, take advantage of the situation. So they apparently don't have in Russia don't have a huge amount of storage space. So production is is pretty much you produce it and you ship it right away. I'm not sure they have a lot of choices. It'll be interesting to see what happens if if this becomes like what the Europeans are trying to do with with their emissions testing, which is to ratchet down the price over time. So right now it's 60, and that may not make a lot of difference, but maybe in three months it'll be 50 or 55, and it might begin to make a difference at that point. There's some signs that it is making a difference. There's now an accumulating backlog of oil tankers outside of Turkey, because Turkey is requiring insurance. For ship oil tankers to pass through its waters, and which means going through the Bosporus, you can't really get through without going through Turkish waters. And there's 19 tankers backed up waiting to prove that they have the necessary insurance. So this could end up being effective in some respects. I mean, I don't think it's going to leave the Russians choking on their oil but may result in an elimination or at least diminution of windfall profits. Yeah, I think
1: Bill's right. It's certainly not going to be decisive, not as long as Russia has a oil cost of production about $40 a barrel. 60 is is a nice markup. Well, is there anything else we can do? Let, well, look, let, let's see. We, we started off with the financial sanctions, the broad-based sanctions, that I recall a, an official saying that would reduce the ruble to rubble, which it didn't. <laughs> so plan B was to give Ukraine a lot of high powered high tech weapons and that hasn't seemed to change things i guess our trustee emeritus henry kissinger says uh, how about start talking <laughs> so i don't know what i don't know what plan c is other than beginning to negotiate well but. the
2: war the war has taken an interesting new turn because the ukrainians have begun attacking uh, russian territory with apparently their own drones there's a bit of mystery about this the West has declined to, the Americans in particular, have declined to sell them weapon system that would allow them to attack across the border into Russia. They don't admit it, but they apparently have been doing that. There have been, I think, three, at least three attacks so far on airfields inside Russia, uh, allegedly with um, Ukrainian drones, some of them fairly old that have been refitted for the purpose. You know, if the Ukrainians can sustain that and have enough drones to do that, this could produce some interesting changes in the war because it brings it to the Russians for the first time. And it really means that Ukrainians go on offense. And that may change the political situation in Russia, not immediately, but eventually.
0: Well, in the meantime, Russia is weaponizing winter and they're certainly hitting critical infrastructure, power grids, water supplies. It's cold in Ukraine right now, and the Ukrainian people are making do. Our hearts go out to them, and we'll definitely be talking about this and other associated trade issues in the weeks to come. Gentlemen, thank you today for your always wonderful insights, and hopefully we can turn around the can kicker situation. (laughs) Or continue to be
1: entertained by By its uh, prevalence. Yeah, Yeah, one or the other. Thank you.
0: Thanks, guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.